0: literary and pedagogical freedom fighters and welcome to the steampunk dollhouse. We're doing something a little different with this episode. My rhetoric and composition theory final project was to do a reflective podcast and because I had the setup and an RSS just sitting there I decided I had to use it. So I do hope you'll stay tuned and listen though as this This is not what you're used to, but I think it will give you a very good idea of what exactly I've been doing for the last two years since I haven't been updating the show. Um, And for today, I'm really excited. My special guests and co-hosts will be Desiree Thorpe and Reagan Campbell. Now, I have had the absolute pleasure of spending the last year working with these amazing women and getting to know them. They are passionate, insightful women. Who have worked very hard to get where they are, and while Desiree and I will be going on to a little bit more work in the immediate future, Reagan will be graduating with her master's degree this December or this semester, this December, and we are incredibly proud of her. And now, please enjoy the show. Desiree and Reagan, welcome.
1: Oh, thank you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they are new to podcasting, so listeners, just a little.
2: Patience on, on, yeah,
0: (laughs) Um, and what we're going to do, we're going to start with my interview of Desiree. So, Ms. Desiree, can you tell us a little bit about your current pedagogical interests and how you first became interested in them?
2: Yeah, so um, my pedagogical uh, interests vary from time to time. Um, It's crazy, really, but right now, I would say that I'm mostly interested in contributing student pedagogy and gamification, and they are very interconnected, and the way I became interested in them was first through um, James Paul Gee, who wrote um, What Video Games Can Teach Us About Literacies and Learning. And in that text, he kind of talks about how video games have certain aspects that facilitate learning in unique and like rewarding ways. And so I became more interested in gamification through that, of kind of questioning how can I take elements from gaming and put them in writing courses for like a unique experience. And one of the qualities um, of uh, gamification that is common is really having the opportunity to like contribute and like to contribute your knowledge and to collaborate. And so I, you know, was really interested on like, is there other disciplines perhaps that have taken this approach or have done something like this? And when talking to my brother, who is a uh, computer science major, he would say that in his computer science and engineering courses that they always had assignments where they were creating resources and they would create these and then let other students use them as kind of guides. And that's exactly what those gamified spaces that I was interested did. And it was known to computer science as well as the field of education as contributing student pedagogy. So I've been really interested in those two aspects and how I can kind of bridge those to uh, rhetoric and composition really.
0: Okay, and as far as gamification, is there a specific definition for what gamification is outside of what you've mentioned? or?
2: Yeah, so um, that's a really good question because I think sometimes it seems really, like, simplified. I always think of that um, Spongebob meme, you know, the one where, like, Patrick's, like, moving Krusty Krab to, like... Or he's like, we'll just move Bikini Bottom over here. Or, like, whatever. You'll know the meme. I can't remember it very well. But sometimes I think people think of gamification like that, where they're like, let's just take games and put them here. And it's like, really, gamification is the adaptation and integration of uh, gamified elements into, like, education or, like, classroom settings. But really, it's for the purpose of, like, motivate uh, motivation Or like support and guidance and it's really just those elements that make gaming a unique experience and rewarding and challenging but also like doable um it's really taking those aspects and putting them in the classroom to like achieve you know a common um rewarding and motivating experience as i would say
0: and you mentioned earlier uh, i guess one i know from having had classes with you for so long one of the scholars Mm -hmm. that has interested you and in influenced you the most is James Paul G who is he and are there others
2: yes James Paul G I was literally (laughs) thinking before we got here I was like I feel like everyone already knows who knows (laughs) me who my favorite you know who it was a strong influence I feel like in every class I have always had something to say about James Paul G like no matter what it is um but I would say James Paul G and Elizabeth Hayes have been strong influences on my pedagogy Um, simply because they've explored gaming and like the world of gaming and like how learning takes place in it and I think that that's really neat and I would have never thought about that at all especially considering like my time in my master's program which was like a general program which mostly emphasized like literature which I'm not hating on literature but you know it's not my thing and I leaned more towards rhetoric and composition and then kind of learning more about Excuse me, these like gamified possibilities and like how learning takes place in gaming and like unique and like really, you know, cool ways that changes how we learn and like learning uh, spaces, like potential of creating learning spaces. Um, I would say he is my favorite and it's interesting. He was a linguist. That's where he got, he got his degree in linguistics, I believe his master's and PhD. Um, and then he kind of started looking toward, like, literacies, new literacies, and then he just played a video game. I'm sure his story is, like, way different than this, but he played <laughs> a video game, and then he was like, whoa. <laughs> like, this is a really rewarding and really challenging and neat experience, and he kind of started uh, investigating that more. I love him. If he, James Paul G., if you're listening somehow, <laughs> if you have some connection <laughs> through this podcast, <laughs> i love you
0: if he has a twitter account i will <laughs> tag him in the post for this
2: Tag him. <laughs> don't judge my bio of you it wasn't planned
0: <laughs> okay so on that note what do you do you expect any changes to gamification in the future do you see it becoming more used i mean i know you've written about your own use of trying to incorporate dark souls into the classroom do you see that becoming yeah. more of a thing in the future
2: I hope so. It's kind of weird because every time I talk about gamification with people they're like, oh yeah, that's like becoming a big thing but I've heard it like several times and like it doesn't really feel that way, I guess but I totally could be wrong, you know um, I What I hope can change uh, in the future is that it's mentioned more kind of like bringing more attention to it and with my Dark Souls 3 project right now, I'm hoping that um, the way I present it it can be Approachable for people who aren't interested in games um, and can really show that audience um, what gaming offers and, like, the values of integrating it so that way it's not too, like, a strange, you know, when someone talks about, like, in gamification, you might, if you don't play games or anything, it might feel weird or, like, not really useful. Um, so I'm just hoping that my own promotion of it, you know, can bring it more to the forefront.
0: And... <clears throat> Speaking of gamification and also Dark Souls, can you tell us about a time when your scholarship impacted your teaching, or how you're trying to incorporate it into your teaching?
2: Yeah, so I would say that for the most part of what I've researched, I think it directly impacts my teaching because I'm trying to figure out ways to change up like learning spaces. And my you know, current project right now, I'm talking about uh, integrating Dark Souls 3's uh, affinity space which is a space that invites guidance and mentorship by allowing players to like leave messages for others. So if you're having a hard time, you can look at maybe a message on the ground which would be a runic message or like bloodstains where people have died. It sounds all crazy, but you know, you find those steps and it helps you along the process. And with Dark Souls being like a really complicated game, that's really challenging. I'm kind of seeing a parallel with, you know, writing in general, which we know writing is like a complex cognitive task. And so I'm wondering how would students feel if they kind of had the same type of support and guidance along the way in their process by adapting those, um, you know, features and elements of Dark Souls 3's affinity space. And so I think that I I hope that I have a lot of, you know, success with integrating it I haven't actually done it yet and I'm mostly talking about you know why we should and how it can be done and I'm hoping that in the future I know now it's a little different with like COVID we're all teaching online some of us so I don't really know um what my studies would be like but I'm hoping soon to like be able to actually integrate those into the classes and build an archive which kind of you know moves on another side of the conversation just kind of creating and generating an archive that is continuously used through um my course and so I'm excited about it
0: and something that I noticed when I was doing the and for the listeners I did teaching observation of Desiree as part of this class as well which was really impressive what she's doing online um but the remix project is what really interested me the multimodal remix can you explain that a little bit
2: yeah, so what I've tried to do, and I'm still making some changes to it, is um, for the remix I've given two options, so typically like, you know, if you teach first year composition, you know, and if you don't, um, there's a remix option that's usually offered toward the end of the course as like a final, and you're able to take a project that you've already uh, created and written, and you're able to remix it using different modes. And what I've done is I created a second option um, for the purpose of my research and just kind of as practice for students to kind of mess with it um, as a way to remix their experience into some type of guide that um, really supports incoming students and gives them like feedback on what what their experience was and kind of like a overall just like a little narrative of things that they had trouble with in ways that will prevent any trouble possibly, or to kind of guide other students during their process by learning from um, their experiences, students who have already completed it. And I think it's really interesting because um, you could simply write a letter, but I've allowed them to kind of use different mediums. And in the past, I've had students use like TikTok and like, you know, all these different uh, sorts of tools and like, of course, like Prezi and PowerPoint. but. Um, I think it's really important to have students call on to mediums and modes that they use because if it is about like support, right, and like leaving messages, you know, what's a way that you would want to receive that message yourself? And we can kind of all think about that too in terms of our own writing, like for our writing as doctoral students and master's students, it's like, what kind of guidance and support would we have liked to receive during certain processes and how would we have liked to access them you know like what mediums would have been interesting or engaging for us well, so
0: I'm thinking a blood uh, a blood stain on the ground probably would have been a good idea exactly
2: yeah <laughs> that's, my, that's my favorite element for those who haven't played Dark Souls 3 one element in the game is a blood stain and it's basically like where most players if you play online you'll see it most players have died in those certain areas and you'll just see blood splatters like everywhere so it's kind of a sign to the current player like hey you might die over here. It's kind of just like a little alert, like it's a little crazy over here. Um and that would be nice to know too, as like, you know, writers and like um scholars and in our process of just moments, you know, maybe the blood stains would start happening like toward like um comps and maybe like starting the dissertation. I don't know, where would those blood stains be at? Um it would be interesting to know. And <laughs>
0: So how has it been overall, like I said, I, you know, having viewed your class and seeing what you're trying to do and trying to keep everybody engaged, how has the engagement been from spring when you had to jump online all of a sudden until now when your class was geared towards being online, how has it been?
2: Um, I think it's been okay. Um, I think my students are doing fine, at least they tell me they are, and I haven't had loads of questions Um, but I do think that it's definitely changed in terms of, like, feeling connected, for sure. Um, and it's so weird to, like, with my lectures, excuse me, with my lectures, I, like, make little YouTube videos, and I try to be super engaging, but sometimes it's weird just, like, talking to yourself, you know, and I don't want to be boring. So it's, like, I try to be fun, but, you know, that's kind of hard. It's a hard, uh... Thing to do, but mostly I am worried a little bit about like the connection and how students feel towards the class because I know I'm the same way in terms of online learning. I sometimes distance myself um, from it overall, and to the point where I'm like, Oh, uh, I don't care, I'm just gonna like do this real quick. And you know, so it's easy to get like, let's all be real and not lie, like, it's easy to do that. And so, I try to think of how can I make that like, how can I move them away from that, you know? Um, and so, I think that having them kind of trying to build some type of um, space where they can like contribute and like a space where they're trying to support each other. I think that's a kind of a way too, in a sense, in terms of like the online courses to kind of bring that connection back in a way.
0: Well, I think you've done a really good job. I mean, everything I've seen, they're they're responding as much as can be expected with everything that's happening. Yeah. But the way that you have it set it up, you have so many options for them to contact you. You know, they can get a hold of you if they have any issues. The flip grid aspect of it I think is a really
2: Yeah, I love flip grid.
0: <laughs> well, you've got it's a, so fun. You've got a few seconds left, so you want to explain the flip grid? flip
2: grid. Yeah, so I like the flip grid because let's all be real, we hate discussion boards. Or maybe you don't. <laughs> Maybe you don't hate discussion boards, but I do. I think they're boring, and I think if anyone tries to argue in support, maybe you you can be justified. <laughs> but, but I don't. I don't know about all that. Um, so I think FlipGrids are fun because you can just quickly just say what's on your mind. But I know that a lot of people don't like to be on the camera, and I feel like sometimes, I know for me especially, I feel like I have to like get ready when I get on the camera. So that's why I have both options, like students can get on the Flipgrid and they can leave a message. And of course you don't have to turn your camera on, you can kind of close it. Um, But if they don't wanna do that then they can use the discussion board. And I found that sometimes they just switch back and forth and it's kind of like some weeks there are no Flipgrids and then next week it's like four or five do it. So it's really interesting to see it's kind of like an energy thing of like, you know, the choice that they make, how much energy do they have, which one seems easier I guess at the time.
0: Well, you've done a, an excellent job.
2: Thank you.
0: And we are going to pass it over to Desiree and Reagan. Thank you.
2: Thank you. So now I'm <laughs> stepping into the role of interviewer, uh-huh. which i you know, have I done this a lot? No.
0: Already no? I have. But you had a lot more to say about pedagogy than Reagan and I will. You <laughs> <laughs> will
2: maybe so we'll see where this goes okay reagan so can you tell us a little about your current pedagogical interests and how you first became interested in them yeah i would
1: love to talk about that
2: so um <laughs> i guess i'll start and kind of beth kind
1: of alluded to this but um, i don't really have a um ambition per se to become a professor or a teacher um in my career choices, um, I have the greatest and most, uh, most expect, uh, uh, respect. I know how to speak. for um, <laughs> teachers. <laughs> I just, it's not in my, I just can't do it. Um, so I don't have, um, so when I was taking this course, I was a little hesitant about it because, you know, I didn't have these interests um, in um, pedagogy per se, although I had taken a pedagogy course previously in my undergrad um, for music. And so I had some pedagogy, understanding and teaching understanding because I teach private lessons on the occasion but um I really didn't understand to the extent the amount that goes into pedagogy um especially in a professor setting um I always think I like try to do a good job of putting my um place in my professor's shoes you know think about like what they do and everything but it wasn't until I took this course and I was like there's a whole lot more to it <laughs> um, and um and I was—I really enjoyed the different theories. That was also something that um, was unexpected to me. So, um, what really interested me and what got me um, super involved with pedagogy and um, my kind of pedagogy were the different theories and the different ways and perspectives people um, take whenever they approach a course. Um, and the one that I was most fascinated with—and I, you know, I think all of us are this way, um, all three of us, because we presented on it—but multimodality. It was my favorite, and <laughs> I enjoyed that thoroughly um I think it's one of the most genius approaches to pedagogy so um that's what I would constitute as my approach to pedagogy um slash my like what my pedagog pedagogical <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah yeah Multimodality is awesome and I and it's funny because I'm like oh yeah we did present on that which was like <laughs> two weeks ago and said,
0: we've spent a lot of time together
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I know like you said like you've done teaching and I know that you also are a writing consultant in the writing center so it's like these you know pedagogical interests and what you have learned have definitely like impacted you and so forth. But I want to move toward sound rhetoric because I know that's something that you have with your research and what you've done in the masters program. Um, so do you want to speak to that and also kind of define, um, sound rhetoric?
1: Yes, I would love to. Also, I think it's hilarious. I totally forgot about the right site for like five minutes there. I was talking about other things <laughs> and I completely <laughs> forgot about the right side. <laughs> <laughs>
2: ah, forget <laughs> yeah. I'm just kidding. Um, my not. <laughs> my <laughs> on
1: that, yeah, I definitely did. Yes, um, but in regards to, um, sound rhetoric, so, um, the fulfillment of my master's degree i'd write a professional paper and i have like three areas of study that i'm like super interested in and that would be um sound slash music um horror and cartoons it's a very random combo but that's just my personality and um when i had to come up with this paper topic i decided to investigate the rhetoric of sound in specific horror films and tv shows um and so I was doing the research for it, and I was working on it, and um, I was consulting with my um, professional paper um, committee, and we were talking about it, and there's really not a lot of study or research on sound rhetoric, but I was able to find um, a couple of pieces, and we'll talk about like those specific scholars who influenced me later, but it was really fascinating because there's not a lot of information on it, but there is a lot of like speculation journal ideas on the idea and um what's so interesting about sound rhetoric and um what can also be applied um towards multimodality and pedagogy is that sound is really really influential um and i think we don't give it enough credit um especially um like in, in regards to my paper i make the argument that um ghosts and demons in the movies manipulate the sound um environment around their victims in order to accomplish their goal of, like, uh, inhabiting their, that soul or whatever they're trying to accomplish um, by using specific kinds of music, like scary music or really happy music, to either make their um, subject feel really scared or really happy. And, um, I mean, that's the, the whole idea that music can um, instill this general feeling of um, joy or terror is something that's like been studied in ancient Greece it's very fascinating but I think that can also be applied to pedagogy and uh, multimodality by, by um, channeling specific sounds and music to listen to while you're working when you're creating pieces and stuff like that certain I mean there's been so many studies on what kind of music can help stimulate thought can help you uh, progress through your writing process um, so yeah, in general, sound rhetoric, I guess I didn't really give a definition here, um, but it's the um, study of, um, or the, um, the ways in which um, sound can be manipulated for a um, specific result um, or a specific outcome. So um, the use of music in order to get a specific motion or specific use of sound to I don't know, channel something, get some sort of emotion, some sort of feedback. So that's what I define it as.
2: Yeah, I agree with you on sound doesn't get much attention, and it should. It really It It should, because I do feel sometimes that sound becomes like an afterthought in terms of multimodality, a lot of the times when we we teach it. Um, So yeah, go you. Oh, thank you. The stuff there. (laughs) Um, So you mentioned it, right? Mm-hmm. What, who would you say are the scholars that had a strong influence, you know, maybe on your interest of multimodality, but also with, you know, sound rhetoric?
1: Absolutely. So in terms of multimodality, um, and I had done a little bit of studying of it when, when I was working on the right side. I occasional projects where we would talk about, like, okay, what would be a great way of getting students more involved in writing? We would talk about ideas of, like, writing about movies and, like, or writing about video games, you know, just like um, Desiree was explaining uh, involving video games and stuff, um, but I hadn't really studied multimodality until this course, and so the scholar that we studied was Jody Shipka. And of course her work, um, you know, reading that, I was like, well, all of this makes sense. It's like everything that I was thinking is just finally put into words. Um, And I loved all the studies that she did. I thought it was all super fascinating. So I would say for sure she is one of the scholars that I think is the most influential in terms of multimodality in my pedagogy um, interests. Um, in terms of sound rhetoric, um, like I said, there's not a whole lot um, of scholars that we've got going up there. But um, one of them that I actually applied his theory um, a lot through my paper was Edmund Burke. So he didn't exactly have a theory approach to sound rhetoric, but he did have the rhetoric apo- approach of um, the sublime so that's about talking about that idea like, okay, if an object is beautiful, that means it's going to instill these beautiful feelings and emotions, and if it's evil, then it's going to create, you know, feelings of horror and terror, that kind of idea. So um, I kind of used his um, theory throughout my paper, but I would say, and the people, um, there are two individuals, and I'm going to definitely butcher their names when pronunciation, I feel so bad about it, um, but... Let me have them right here. Um, Trevor Pinch and Karen um, Besterveld, I think is how you pronounce her name. Um, she's from the Netherlands. But they're kind of like the pioneers of sound rhetoric. Um, and they mm-hmm. kind of established the general idea of it. And the um, they kind of also evaluated a little bit more on the idea of soundscapes, um, which is a concept um, coined by Murray Schaefer. Uh, but just the general idea of using the environment around you for sound to instill a specific reaction. Um, So I would say that, I guess I listed like four scholars there, but (laughs) yeah, the (laughs) four of them, I would say, were the most influential um, and I definitely recommend their work. Yeah,
2: for sure. I just think you've said soundscapes a couple times and I've thought of this article I read from Computers and Composition about soundscapes. And there was one that was like soundscapes of the coffee shop and had a little playlist and I played it and I swear it sounded like just broken plates. Like I'm not yeah, trying to hate job. on their research. Yeah. It, it sounded like a bunch of like clanking of plates. And I was like, look, I've worked in a coffee shop and it does not like where, what coffee shop are you going to? It was like, <laughs> you need to do more, more- plates. <laughs> it's just a bad sound bit, but yeah. you know, it's interesting to see how people also with what you mentioned earlier, like a writing process How that's impacted by soundscapes or like specific environments of sound. Absolutely. Um, So what do you expect to change in sound rhetoric in the future? Ah that's a great question. So kind of
1: like what you were mentioning in terms of um, games and stuff like everyone says that you know oh I see it already emerging in the field not in just composition, but in general, but um, I also have the same kind of response as you do, where it's like, okay, I can kind of see that, but I also don't. Um, so I think there's a long way, like a quite a bit of ways to go um, before we can really develop um, on these ideas, um, especially in terms of composition, because as we've studied throughout this course, there's, um, you know, the, um, oh my goodness, I have lost the term for it, but, um, you know, we're a specific group of people that choose the same text year after year and they don't change. I, I don't remember the term for it, but... Like the um, canon? Yeah, canon. Thank you. I
2: don't
1: know. You know, um, breaking from the canon, that is so difficult to do, especially in, like, state schools um, where there's the same expectation year after year after year and there's not going to be a whole lot of change. Like, and if there is, it's just itty bits, like over time. So, um, I think it's going to be a while before we start really implementing like sound rhetoric into like our daily lives. I mean, I know teachers play music all the time in classrooms, but like the specific use of it to, um, channel certain things um, like okay so like using classical music specifically towards Shakespeare texts or something like that I think that's going to take a while and I think there also needs to be a lot more studies um, in terms of those things before we start implementing them in the classroom Um, in terms of just in general with sound rhetoric I did take this amazing course my senior year of my undergraduate that was um, about you know the specific study of music in specific um, art mediums and it was really interesting and super um, fascinating i loved it so much but it was only um you could only take it if you were a senior or a graduate student so it's still a very limited field it's still a very small class it was like eight of us and i went to a fairly i say medium-sized university so you would think that like you know it'd be offered a little bit more but there's just there's not a lot of um text or scholarly study on it so it's not a very large course so i still think we've got a long way to go um also you know kind of weird to think about but um movies are really like what just over a 100 years old it's still a fairly new um field so we've got we've got a lot to work with and I mean video games also not that old um when you really think about it so we got a little ways but I think in the future it's going to be really really fun to kind of mix all those together um to really I don't know stimulate thought I think there's a lot there to help us write and create so are my Oh, yeah,
2: I have I have a dark, um, comment if that's okay if I make it. Sometimes I'm like Beth's face. Sometimes I'm like super excited for the future. I'm like, whoa, what are like what are the new ideas and new approaches? But then I'm like, but I might be dead and like I'm not gonna know. I'm not gonna know because I'll be dead. Does that ever make y'all sad? Like you're not gonna know what happens. I
0: love you so much.
2: <laughs> I think that I. No, I mean... That got dark too. fast. <laughs> That's the dark vibe of the podcast. <laughs> yeah. my, my last comment, Reagan, on what you were saying about, um, you mentioned a course you took. Um, if I'm right, did you say in that course a while back that they talked about the music that was made in Catherine, the puzzle... We sure did.
1: We spent a day on that, and I was confused the entire day. I, I had never heard of that game before, um, but we watched several clips from it, talked about it all the time. So strange. It is yeah. a
2: strange game. I was so curious. I was like,
1: I would take that course. Um. Um, it was so awesome, but yeah, we definitely studied that one, and I, I was so confused. But yeah, we, we analyzed the music in that one. It was That one was weird. I'm not going to lie. That was weird. (laughs) (laughs) They
2: always are. Um, Okay. So lastly, can you tell us about a time when your scholarship impacted your teaching or um, maybe your tutoring um, sessions? Oh, sure. Absolutely. So um, I have general,
1: like, um, especially in terms of when I've been um, doing private lessons, if students are having a really hard time memorizing or developing on a specific like etude or something, I make them come up with a story and they come up with like, okay, so this melody is a certain character or this harmonization is a certain part of the story. And by matching music to a storyline, it's easier for them to remember and to develop on. It just makes it easier for them to understand. Um, and i tried to do a little bit of that and the right side, too, only I have 30 minute to an hour session. So it's like really hard to do, um, especially if they don't keep coming back. But the idea of like, OK, listen to music and really think about, OK, so here's the beginning, middle and end. Do you see how that the song does that? OK, so you should also try doing that with your writing piece. So like, OK, so how would you create your beginning? How would you create the middle and how would you create the end? And what would that sound like? How would that develop? That kind of thing. How would you connect it? Because you can hear that in music
2: try implementing your writing in that sense so that's really fascinating oh, um, and, and thank you and thanks for allowing me to be the interviewer oh, in this part of I- the podcast you killed it I'm gonna- <laughs> you did I it very
0: so. very well it's like you're a pro
2: thank you <laughs> like I'm that a pro I mean really no, I do it. <clears throat> mine is going to be much turn. less
0: impressive Please.
1: You're going to do great. I get to do it with Blue Stocking herself.
0: <laughs> Temper oh, expectations. I'm
1: just <laughs> All right. Um, so, hello, Beth. Hello. How are you?
0: I'm all right. How are you? <laughs>
1: I'm good. Let's, let's do this. Okay. Okay. So, can you tell us a little about your current pedagogical interests and how you first became interested in them?
0: Um... Well, like we've talked about, I'm my journey is a little different than Desiree's or, you know, or even you where you teach at the right site. I don't do any of that. Um, I'm in this mainly to write a dissertation about steampunk and libraries. But along the way, I became really, really interested with information literacy. That is, once I started going to library school and working at the university library, I um, and actually, especially once I started PhD school, it became even more important. Um, information literacy, it just, it became clear that this, this is something that needs to be taught more. It needs to be taught better. And having come from, and my community college was fantastic. I have no complaints about it, but I was a non-traditional student. I hadn't been in high school for 15 years. I had no idea how to use a college university library. Or a college library, and I got a 30-minute instruction in an English class. That was it. I had no idea how to use any of it, um, and so that was where I first became in- interested in-, in information literacy for non-traditional students. Um, a course designed where they could come in, um, like a six-week session at the very beginning of the semester at the university they come into the library you know it's programmed around their timing because we know non-traditional students have schedules that are all over the map and this way they could come in they could spend a few weeks getting to know the databases learning um how to differentiate between which sources are good which sources are not so great you know facebook is not a source Wikipedia is not a source, but you can use the sources in Wikipedia, things like that. And then once um, I started taking this class this semester uh, with Jackie, and I I started researching more and more into information literacy in conjunction with first-year composition. And I didn't realize how important that necessarily would be as well. So not just the non-traditional students, but actually, because everybody has to take Comp. Absolutely everybody has to take it. You have to take the first half, you have to take the second half. We all have to do it when we start, no matter how old we are. And so taking that information literacy course and integrating it and working academic librarians, working in conjunction with FYC instructors, just a combined classroom is, it's just the best idea. And I don't know why it's not done more. It's just, instead of just one 30-minute session, you know, two weeks into your comp class, integrate it. Make it, or even one program, and we'll get to this, I'm sure, later, but one program that I read about incorporates the academic librarians, uh, the first-year composition program, and the tutoring center. So it's a, a trifecta, all working together Absolutely. for the first-year comp program, and it's amazing. So I don't know that I'll ever be able to act on these pedagogical interests, you know, I don't know where my career is going to go, but that was taking this class actually is, you know, what really made me think about FYC, which is why I wrote my our, our, um, our pedagogical interest piece. That's why I did that, our literature review. I did that on the collaborative because it's just, it's such a good idea, and it's right there, and all the stats say this works, and <laughs> this works every single time, even a little bit, even a two-week course, makes it better. So right. that was where that came from.
1: I love that. That's so fascinating. <laughs> and you have that personal experience, which, you know, is hard for anybody else to really like get access to. So um, and I want to hear so much more about information literacy. Um, so how would you go about defining information literacy? And you also talked about how Um, in the past, and currently the way that information literacy is being discussed and taught, is not up to caliber? So could you also um, elaborate on that a little bit as well?
0: Without turning this podcast into something that is political, we have seen what has happened this year Mm -hmm. with Facebook information, um, with things have gotten to the point that Twitter now... Flags, tweets, certain tweets from Blue... and I'm making quotey fingers. Um, (laughs) Blue (laughs) checked, you know, verified accounts. um, Because they're famous people, influential people, who may be sharing information that's questionable or wrong. And regular, uh, all of us regular people don't necessarily know how to parse the good information from the bad. Especially now the internet <laughs> is like having a fire hose to your face. There's <laughs> so much information. So information literacy, I mean if you want to get down to the you know the definition of it, it's, it's being able to know where to go to find the good information knowing how to pick out the right stuff, knowing how to tell if it's right, or valid, or legitimate, or any of that, and disseminating it from there. So that is essentially what information, it's, it's exactly what it sounds
1: like. Cool. I like it a lot, excellent. So um, what scholars would you say have had such a strong influence on you in terms of information literacy or in general, um, and especially about your pedagogy?
0: that's a little harder Um, there's not like particular scholars that stand I have no James Paul G for information literacy there's (laughs) there's no scholars that stand you know above the the fray Um, it's it's generally academic librarians and first year composition instructors doing studies at their universities and submitting papers and then you know so that's there's not really any scholars that I can refer back to as far as that goes. Um, but again, this semester, like you mentioned, the one multimodal, multimodality has always interested me, and I think it could also be incorporated into this kind of program in a very good way, especially when we're talking about sources that you find on TikTok or Facebook or Twitter, and you're instituting a multimodal approach where you're using those things. Um, so like you, the Shipka book, um, Maybe it's just because I had to focus on it so hard because we did our project on it, but I really liked the Shipka book and the things that she has to say about (laughs) (laughs) multi-modality and how important it is to use those because that's what's going to keep them engaged because even if you put the library together with the FYC to create a program, it's still not necessarily going to keep them engaged. It's not going to keep students wanting to write. It's not going to show them that... This is something that they can have an effect on. You know, if they're still just if they're still just writing a research paper, you know, they're not going to have any interest in it. You want to show them the different avenues that they have in order to put their material out there and how to do it right and to make sure that they're putting correct information out there on whatever platform that they're using. So, the Shipka book had a big effect on me, and we haven't mentioned it, but the book is called "Toward a Composition Made Whole" by Jody Shipka. Um, oh. Yeah, <laughs> I forgot to mention that it had a bit of, and I have it in the show notes uh, um, that you can find it if you want to go and look for it. But yeah, that one, she made an impression on me.
1: I like it. Yeah, no, <laughs> she she definitely did. I I it's an excellent book, absolutely. Um, so what would you expect to change about information information literacy in the future? You kind of mentioned this um, in response to the first question about like what you would implement in terms of um, FYC courses, but um, what else would you expand on?
0: (sighs) That's, it's very clear, like we've talked about, that information literacy is something that is sorely lacking, but I don't know, other than implementing it into a classroom setting, that's going to affect... The people that are coming up now, the people that are filtering through the system now, um, the people you know will affect students who move into the future, into their careers, and have a better grasp of how to do things. But it can't. Hopefully, maybe at some point we can tip the balance mm-hmm. so that there are more people who do understand how to find the things that they need to find, versus what we have now, which is just the wealth of disinformation that is everywhere. But, it's also, but that's also a matter of people understanding that the information that they have is not valid. That's You have to make them understand that QAnon is not a valid source.
1: <laughs> right, right. Certain
0: things are not... Reddit is not a valid source. They may provide... They, and they can show you places to go, but they're, they, you have to understand why the source is wrong and that's where the disconnect is and that's where the failing is and so I think it's just a matter of tipping the balance it's getting people now and getting them through these courses and teaching them so that the balance finally tips that we have more people out there but I mean as long as the internet exists we're going to have bad information you're never always going to be able to fight everything you just can't um but i think that we can make it better by instituting these kinds of courses um, but outside of the university i mean you can teach media literacy and information literacy in public libraries they absolutely do it they do it all the time they do it in you know public in a public school libraries but if you do it in a public library people have to attend they have to listen you know they have to understand why it's important and so that's getting them and this is going <laughs> to this is going to sound like him. I'm not saying, you know, grab them in college and, you know, indoctrinate them, but that's kind of what you have to do. You have to get them when they're in college and show them why and make them understand that your paper will be better. And those are skills that they will incorporate into their brain and carry with them into the future. So, indoctrinate the children.
1: I love it. So that's a great phrase. You should like get that embroidered or something, and get that on a sweatshirt. Uh, yeah, no, I love that absolutely. Um, and so you've mentioned this, um, you know, that there's not a lot of um, uh, quote unquote um, scholarly information about um, uh, information literacy, but in general, and you have this wealth of knowledge, and I mean being a librarian and, you know, just crushing it at everything you do. Uh Um, But (laughs) (laughs) you do, you do. Um, Can you just explain some more and talk to us a little bit more about um, when your scholarship has impacted your work? I mean, like, not only in terms of information literacy. I mean, you've done so much in terms of pedagogy. Or, sorry, not, not pedagogy. Podcasting. Wow, those are two very different words, but I said them anyways. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of podcasting and steampunk literature, all that good stuff.
0: Um, and then we roll around to the steampunk. Yeah. <laughs> it always comes back to the steampunk. Um, It actually, college did change that for me. It changed the way I read steampunk literature. Um. It caused me to look for steampunk literature that was not the tropey. And we've, you know, I've, I've talked about, and this is the whole reason that I had this show, was that I didn't want the tropey white male Victorian dude, you know, running around with goggles and, you know, in Victorian London. Um, so my scholarship has changed the way I view steampunk literature in that I do take a more critical look at it. Um, I, I am more mindful of the things that I read as far as that goes and i'm much more mindful of the things that i promote in my whatever capacity is as a steampunk scholar because i want to make sure i'm also putting out the right information and you know that i'm sharing the right books because there are books that seem okay at first glance and then you look into the author and not so much you know things are not so great there's microaggressions in the books there's things that shouldn't be so my scholarship has definitely impacted my love of steampunk but it's made it more it's made it it's made it more better <laughs> it's 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 given me a deeper appreciation for the authors who are bucking the system and the ones who decided they deserved to be seen in the books and so started putting out some of the most amazing works i've ever seen um because that there was a different way to do it. There was a better way to do it. And, and now I'm rambling about steam.
1: Why did
2: you ask me this question?
1: <laughs> because I'm so interested. I mean, like I think it's so fascinating. I don't have a, an entire, like, uh, not, you know, I, I, I knew a little bit about Steampunk, but not a whole lot. And ever since I met you, I'm such, I'm way more fascinated about it because I just love your passion for it. So, um, do you have like a specific authors or novels you highly recommend for someone who's wanting to get into that field and that area that you would say? resembles everything that you've been discussing about you know getting rid of those microaggressions and promoting you know a sense of community and uplifting and all that stuff
0: um for the the i guess this does actually kick back to pedagogy for the course that i created for dr lackey i the books that i suggested um that we use or the the ones that i had on my quote-unquote syllabus were dread nation by justina ireland um, Gaslight Dogs by Karen Lawachi, um, Everfair by Nisi Shawl. That was just a few of them, and these are books that I've already covered on my podcast. But those are some of the best. Um, they feature uh, heroines or um, protagonists of color, and they're just—they're real and they're painful, but they're also full of joy. You know, they have joyous moments too. Some of them do. So it's, you know, and there's zombies and things like that. So. You have now, listeners, you have met uh, Desiree and Reagan, and heard a little bit about the amazing projects and things that they are working on. I'm so proud of them. Um, but we are absolutely out of time. We had a pretty strict time living on this that we had to adhere to. So I want to say thank you to both of you ladies. I want to thank you for allowing me to put this on my feet as well. I really appreciate that. Um, absolutely.
1: Thank you for having us.
0: Oh, it was a joy. And uh, I hope, listeners, that you enjoyed that as much as I did. Um, PhD school has been a bit of a thing, but it has brought me some of the most amazing friends and uh, some really incredible instructors. And it has not been easy, but I do know that what I have been learning is incredibly valuable. Um, So with that, we're done. And I will see you again, listeners, although who knows where or win. dollhouse is a wind-up girl studios production in association with the simply adorkable podcast network and bears a creative commons attribution non-commercial share alike 4.0 international license this episode was written and produced by elizabeth hedrick desiree thorpe and reagan campbell moral support provided by dr jackie herman elliott our intro and outro music was november baby by torres and our episode music was ladies take me with you by dr turtle as always you can find this and much more at freemusicarchive.org For complete attribution, see the show notes or visit us at spdhpod.com or simplyadorkable.org. Concerned about how you can bring more to your pedagogy, but you're also attending grad school in the midst of a pandemic, but at least you have some amazing people to help you get through, but really you need to work on creating a more expansive and diverse pedagogy? Contact us for assistance at steampunkdollhouse at gmail.com or on Twitter at spdhpod. And finally, we thank you for tuning in. I'll keep reading your rights for as long as you keep listening blue stocking out